So we're back to another Diversity Center alumni podcast. I'm Angie Hambrick, Associate Vice President of Diversity, Justice, and Sustainability. And I'm so excited, as always, to talk to three badass D-Center alumni around our topic today. So just a reminder that the Diversity Center podcast, alumni podcast, centers the voices of D-Center alumni um, and our podcast also has a focus on the values of the Diversity Center, which are critical reflection, perspective-taking, community, and care. So the, the topic that we're going to cover today is one of the values of the D-Center, which is care. Care is the focus of this episode. And as folks engage in equity work, folks from minoritized and marginalized communities, and just folks who are living in our current so social, political, economic, and cultural climate, care for ourselves, as Audre Lorde has said, is, is not self-indulgence, but self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. So we're going to talk about what care looks like. So to do that with me, I have, again, as I said, three alumni, badass alumni. Um, first is Malia Lee. She is a 2013 grad and an English teacher. Hey, Malia. Hi. Next is Jennifer Maliska. Jennifer is a 2002 graduate and a clinical social worker. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Angie. And finally, doctor, doctor, saying that for the first time, mm -hmm. coming out, Dr. Kobe Harvey. Kobe is a 2008 grad and a freelance writer and designer. Hey, Kobe. Hey. <laughs> so welcome. Um, so let's start at square one and talk about kind of the complexities of care and to talk about how do we define care? So what does self-care look like and what are some tools that you all use to care for yourselves? Go, Malia. I'll, I'll be a teacher. Malia? <laughs> well, to share with the class, um, for me, self-care is something that I haven't centered until it became a medical necessity. Um, I was going through multiple mental and physical health conditions that were a result of just pushing myself too much, being too busy, because I thought that's what I needed to do. Um, but in the last year and a half, I've really slowed down and taken time for myself and asked um, others for what I've needed. And a lot of that is just alone time, um, whether it's reading a book or writing um, or doing something creative. And I've surprised myself, and I actually find that I enjoy nature, which I did not think I would. Mm -hmm. um, I went camping for the first time, and I didn't die. And it was actually really nice to just say that I've faced something that I didn't think I would like. And I feel a lot more refreshed after that experience. Um, and I think a lot of times it, I get stuck in my head of, well, this is what self-care is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be a pretty hashtag and everybody should be doing the same things. But like the Audre Lorde quote says, it's not selfish. It's doing what you need to do. Um, so I'm learning how to not ask for permission and just do it. I'll piggyback on that. I think in, in my clinical work, um, self-care is often a prescription of, you know, things have been rough or you went through some trauma or life is challenging or you're stressed, let's do some self-care as a reaction to that, which sounds a little bit like what you were talking about of taking care of ourselves once we're completely depleted, mm -hmm. which absolutely is a fantastic thing to do. But I think there's also the part of um, 
making it just a habit and a lifestyle proactively. So we maybe don't get to the points where it becomes medicinal or or a prescription or something we do in reaction to being already burned out. We can't pour from an empty cup, right? So keeping ourselves um, nourished and taking care of ourselves proactively and making it um, a personal thing. I like what you said about not making it a hashtag. And I think that's something that we're going to jump into today mm-hmm. is that idea of performative self-care and how we want to want to show that off and prove we're doing it right, like there's some right way to, to nurture mm-hmm. ourselves um, when really it should be a, a personal lifestyle and a, a habit. Yeah, trying to establish those long-term habits is kind of what I'm working on right now. The end of grad school was pretty rough, and I got to a – I mean, to say I was depleted uh, is maybe an understatement. Mm-hmm. Um but just trying to change how I look at that kind of stuff. I'll agree with you, Malia, trying to get away from the hashtag. Um, also trying not to think of it as like fun or in terms of enjoyment, just more like devoting time and energy to yourself and well-being. Absolutely. I think sometimes self-care is not pretty. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's cleaning out your car or going to the doctor to get a pap smear or, mm-hmm. or doing the things that we need to do to make sure we're emotionally, physically, mentally well. Um, it's not always a, a bubble bath and candles, which I love those things, but sometimes that's not the right tool for for what I need at that moment. And I think self-care really is um, being intentional in the present moment as a gift to our future self, setting ourselves up to not become depleted and as a way to maybe heal our past selves when we have been depleted. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, um, I'll direct this to you and and Colby and Malia, please jump in. But something Malia said about seeing self-care as not taking care of herself until she saw it as a necessity. Mm -hmm. And just wondering, from your experience, why do you think we wait so long to get to that point where it's Mm -hmm. necessary that I stop instead of building in these these habits, these Mm -hmm. ongoing habits of taking care of myself? I'll speak from my experience as a woman and as a mother, um, as a therapist, as somebody who's really situated in maybe traditional helping roles where we've been socialized to put others first and the care of our children or our clients or our students, um, our loved ones, trumps, if you will, proceeds, um, (laughs) our own care where um, we think, oh, well, I'll get to myself later. I'll, I'll... buy the, the stuff my children need. And if there's extra left for me, I'll, I'll buy myself a treat. Mm-hmm. Or um, I'm going to spend time taking care of my, my clients' emotional needs. And then at the end of the day, um, just don't have the space for mine. Um, so from my personal experience, I had to really kind of flip that a little bit. And one of the classic metaphors for self-care is the oxygen mask metaphor. I don't know if you've heard this, where if you're in an airplane, they say to you, if in the event of a drop in oxygen levels, um, put your oxygen mask on first before you help anyone else. And as you know, me as a mother helper fixer, I always was like, well, that's so weird. Don't we want to help those in need first? But if you're passed out because you have no oxygen, you're really not very useful to others. Um, so I think there's some socialization there of others are more important than us. Um, I use that analogy a lot with clients, but I also kind of want to challenge that analogy too in this idea that we are worthy regardless of our impact on others. It's not just I have to take care of myself in order to take care of others. I have to take care of myself because I'm worth it as a human and others can benefit from my own self-care, but they're not maybe the reason for it. Colby, what are some ways that you take care of yourself? Well, honestly, the biggest right now is going to therapy. That's a huge thing. They're high-fiving, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I've just had a 
had a rough couple of years. Um, my stepfather passed away and uh, school was just not great. And I was in a living in a place where I really wasn't happy. And um, I don't know, just taking time once a week to work on that with the help of a professional has um, helped immensely. Other than that, I try to make more time for me and my partner. I also try to uh, get away from my phone for a bit. I know that sounds really basic, but just kind of focusing on one thing really helps Mm -hmm. and not having your mind go to 8 million different things. I mean, it kind of does that anyways, but if you can head that off at the pass even a little bit. What about you, Malia? Um, I would piggyback off of the therapy thing. Um, I kept it a secret from a lot of loved ones that I was going to therapy and then it all kind of blew up and I had a meltdown and then I just screamed, well, I'm going to therapy. What do you want from me? Um, and that became work for the next several weeks for me to go through. Um, but like you said, like having that intentional time to unpack what's going on and why you're feeling the way you're feeling and getting curious about, you know, what makes me feel that way has been really helpful. Um, I've stepped away from that for a little bit because, um, I work through my workbook and I'm feeling better. I have more tools in my toolbox. Um, but asking for what I need, uh, even if it's writing my husband a sticky note saying like, I need a little bit of time today or just texting him like, I'm in a bad mood. I need like an hour to just veg out and then I'll be okay. Um, instead of just forcing myself to do things for other people and doing the angry dishes, like, well, it has to get done and I have to do this for other people. Um, that turning it into like an everyday regular habit of asking for what I need instead of being resentful. And then it builds up to a point where I have to have a big solution. Um, That's been a huge turnaround for me in the last year. One of the reasons why, you know, I'm asking for kind of specific examples of how you take care of yourselves is because of what we mentioned a little bit earlier around performative care, performative self-care. And, you know, we see it on social media. We're going to pick on social media, but we see folks with hashtags and bubble baths and their toes sticking out and candles all around (laughs) and self-care. Michael Buble. Right? In the background. (laughs) (laughs) That's self-harm. Oh, no. And we see that and we see, you know, the likes that something like that gets. Mm-hmm. So um, when I say performative care, uh, self-care, what does that invoke for you? I think you kind of nailed it right there. This idea of it has to be really indulgent and beautiful. And, um, you know, for me, the idea of like proving that I'm doing it right. You know, people mm-hmm. need to see that I'm doing self-care because that's the thing. And I have to be doing it in the most luxurious, indulgent way. Um which I think creates more stress, right? Anytime that we're performing something, there's that pressure of getting it right. And then we need to kind of do our self-care to take care of maybe feeling like we're a failure doing our own self-care. So it creates this little trap there. Um, I like to think about self-care as um, if I were a toddler. Toddlers are very good at self-care. Angie, you have a toddler, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I think your child, when they need something, they do what they need to do to get their needs met. Yep. If they're hungry, if they're tired, if they have an emotion they need to expressing if they need a hug they're going to just ask for it mm-hmm. or demand it if they need to yep. um and I think we could take a lesson from that of saying maybe to ourselves I need this right like Malia said asking your partner not even asking telling your partner I need a, a quiet evening tonight I need to go do this and not making excuses for it um 
so I think, I think the idea of performative self-care is we need to prove ourselves and then we feel apologetic if we don't do it right or if that we're asking for things that don't fit that ideal of self-care. It feels a lot like high school uh, where you are trying on different trends or like wearing the same thing as everybody else, but really you don't like it. It's not comfortable, but you're doing it because everybody else is doing it. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I've done that. Um, I've done like the cute stage photo with like my bathtub tray and the wine glass. And then it's really stressful because then the bubbles aren't where you want them to be and it's melting and then the water's cold. (laughs) And then it's like, well, now I need a bubble bath because of my bubble bath. Um, (laughs) I failed my self-care. And I've fallen down the rabbit hole of social media. um, And I just learned that there's a setting. It's like a parent control setting, but you can limit your time on social media Mm -hmm. and then it locks it down. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found that turning off your phone and just stepping away from it, um, is really helpful because I don't really care what strangers on the internet are doing and they don't really care what I'm doing. So what is it for? Am I doing it for likes and getting feedback from people that don't really know me and therefore don't really care about me? Or is it for accountability? There's a difference between the cute stage photo and then doing like a 30-day yoga challenge and you want people to hold you accountable and ask you if you've mm-hmm. done your 30 minutes of yoga that day. Um, and that's, I think, something that we should start shifting our attention towards. Yeah, there is kind of, it sounds like we're talking about this, uh, at the root of this, there's some kind of insecurity. Mm-hmm. And there's something about when you take that picture of it, you're kind of gathering that up and then like sending it outward to other people mm-hmm. even if that's not your intention mm-hmm. you know it's and like, you're asking I'm okay right? right right I'm okay right yeah yep what's the harm in all that for me it's relying on other people for my mm-hmm. own worth um and realizing I'm compulsively checking Instagram to see how many likes I have and mm-hmm. if a certain person hasn't liked it then I wonder if that's like an unspoken like passive aggressive message towards me mm-hmm. When it could be nothing, it could be they're just at work and they're not on their phone like I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can lead to some really negative relationships with people in real life because you have a perception and then you just run with it because that's what I've done. Well, it takes the self out of Mm self-care. Self-care is about ourselves taking care of ourselves, not situating ourselves to be validated by others. So deep. Bam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mic drop. I, I would mean, drop this mic, but it looks really them, expensive. But, I mean, <laughs> some, drop something. Some paper or something. I think one of the biggest things I've done for self-care in the past couple of years is um, changing my expectations of myself and my expectations of how I want others to perceive me and realize not everybody has to like me or like the things that I post online, that's okay. Um, And that I can do the things that feel good for myself and not have to justify or excuse them to other people. Um, And I think that that's been really liberating and it's allowed me to really check in with myself for myself and say, what do I need right now? You know, regardless of what anybody else thinks about it. And I think one of the biggest challenges to self-care is feeling like sometimes, and again, I'm kind of situating this in my role as maybe my mother or or partner of having to excuse it or apologize for it. Like, I'm sorry, but I really need to go and um, watch Netflix for an hour. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You make your own dinner Um, instead of going, I need some time alone and letting that be okay. Mm -hmm. So that taps into a little bit of maybe some guilt that I've been socialized to that I really try to push back on. If the term self-care, seem, it seems to come with a lot of baggage, just a ch- term, like 
it, there's this performative as, aspect of it, and also it it's it can be a buzzword, um, and people can actually mock it, like, oh, you need some mm-hmm. self-care. Ah. <laughs> is it, um, it sounds so silly, but is there a different term or a different phrase to talk about caring for yourself? Or do we just need to reclaim the word or the phrase self-care? I think part of why it gets such a bad rap is the performative aspect. It, people see that it's disingenuous and it's artificial and they comment on it, but then they also kind of feed back into it. Um, so I think reclaiming it and like, this is what self-care looks like. It's not always the pretty picture with the filter. Um, sometimes it's me crying in my car because that person cut me off and I didn't like the way you looked at me, but I needed to cry and that was okay. Um, and I think kind of shifting how we model that, especially thinking about like my students who like they tease me for my self-care Sundays and well, it helps me and it helps you because it helps me. Um, I think kind of reframing the way we look at it, it's less of a thing to mock. And I think even not responding when someone kind of calls it out because they don't like how you do it, that's fine because it's for me and it's not for you to judge or tell me, well, that was a worthwhile use of your time. I think the idea of self-care also um, pushes back on our culture of busy that we have. This idea of, I mean, you ask anybody, you walk through campus today and say, how are you doing? I think a lot of people would say, I'm so tired. I'm so busy as sort of just a a knee-jerk response. Um, And there's some merit to that. You know, we sort of get a badge of honor for being the most busy or the most tired. Um, And self-care is the antidote to that. But I I think our our American culture at least really values productivity, right? If you're Mm -hmm. not productive, then then what are you? Um, whereas self-care, I think, can be dubbed as unproductive. Well, you're just being lazy, mm-hmm. right? Or you're not helping others or um, you're being selfish. Um, and so it gets into that vicious cycle of, you know, this is not a productive um, giving use of my time. Um, so I always talk to my clients about redefining what productive is and taking care of yourself is productive, right? It's, it's a means to an end. It's going to help you um, write your papers better. It's going to help you be a better parent or, you know, be a better employee because you're taking care of yourself. Um, but it, it, I think like Malia said, and we have a lot of stigma attached to what that really looks like. Yeah. That makes me think of something I was thinking about last night. Um, when I was getting ready for this, it's just like how much of this, at least in my mind is wrapped up in a kind of like transactional language and how our, time and lives are commodified and Mm -hmm. self-care kind of flies Mm -hmm. in the face of that. And so even just, you know, thinking about what I would say, I was having trouble uh, getting outside of language, like, oh, I invest in myself. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it's still this kind of like financial jargon. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, if we can like keep that separation and kind of honor that separation, even though this has kind of been co-opted by, you know, company selling bath salts or whatever mm-hmm. um I, I think if I think we can keep that term if that separation can still be intact I think ideally it shouldn't even be a thing right we shouldn't have to have a special name for taking care of ourselves it should just be what we do right, right. it's just part of our good habits and our lifestyle and our culture and it wouldn't have this separate um concept of what it is right And I think all of it just falls under the umbrella of health, Mm -hmm. like whether it's for mental health Mm -hmm. or physical health, um, it's all just about being well. Mm -hmm. But I think we do have 
kind of that fun term self-care mm -hmm. and now it's turning into something that wasn't the original intention mm -hmm. um, and it's counterintuitive but I think it just falls under being healthy and well. Um, one of the things that you mentioned um, Jennifer was this busy culture um, and that we base um, productivity or even worth on how busy we can say that we are. Like like you said, I can go to any office, any person and say, how are you? Oh my God, I'm so busy. And busy has started to be one of those words I just don't like because we're, we're all busy. Like we all have shit to do. Um, it's more about kind of how you prioritize stuff. Um, but busy, as you said, is, is one of these things that um, means that we need more care. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the root of the busy culture. Um, what is this narrative? Where did it come from? Um, and what might be a counter narrative to that? That's a big question. I know. <laughs> I think back many moons to my childhood where there were times where I was bored and that was fun. It was fun to be bored and just go, I can do whatever I want right now. And my friends were bored and we would be bored together. Um, I think looking at my kids' generation, it's a little different. You know, you hear kids say, I'm bored, and a parent or caregiver will say, well, if you're bored, I'll find you something to do. Um, and they often overcommit children so they're, they don't have boredom, right? They're in different sports. They have extracurriculars. There's a ton of homework these days. Um, and so I think from a very young age, kids are learning to that idea of productivity. I have to fill my time with these ideas of what's productive, what's, um, what success might be. Um, and I'm not really having time to be bored or think about what my own needs are. Um, and I think that then we grow into a generation where we're very uncomfortable with that and we have to be productive for fear of being seen as lazy or worthless, um, unsuccessful. Um, so I think there's a lot of pressure there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is, a, we could do a whole podcast on the culture of busy. Right? Good. But, Stay tuned um, for part two. Part two. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I think we, this idea of to be worthy is to be productive and fill your time with what is deemed successful is, is maybe part of that route. Mm -hmm. And what is deemed as successful? I know like working in the diversity center, part of my productive day is sitting on the couch and engaging mm -hmm. with students in the community. Mm -hmm. And folks who don't have that context or have a different understanding of what pro productivity looks like sees me mm -hmm. and says, oh, I wish I just had enough time mm -hmm. just to sit here and chill out and hang out with students. And it's like, well, you could actually, because mm -hmm. it, it is a part of your job, all of us to engage with mm -hmm. students. I just do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. You do it in this transactional way, maybe in a business office. Mm -hmm. And I do it with asking them, yo, what's going on with your classes or mm -hmm. just being in community. So I think understanding, um, different understandings of what productivity looks like, mm -hmm. what does success look like is, is different uh, depending on context. And we tend to think that all of our contexts are the same mm -hmm. when we're in an organization. In the teaching world, a lot of it comes from like, who's the first one in the parking lot in the mm -hmm. morning? Who's the last yep. one to leave? Um, who lets students eat lunch in their classroom and keeps their door open at all times. Um, and I've done all of those things and been completely depleted to the point of almost leaving the profession. Um, and I think a lot of it has 
something to do with like you need some sort of artifact that you did something. Mm -hmm. You need proof that you were working or that you did something worthwhile. Um, And part of it, I think, comes from the fact that we like instant gratification. We like to see that I spent half an hour working on this. So therefore, I have, you know, a whole week of lesson plans mapped out instead of, well, I needed 30 minutes just to be quiet. So I turned the lights off and now I'm more refreshed and ready to work. Um, And I just think it's not the norm to do that because we want to see that other people are using their time wisely. I know I get irritated if the teacher across the hall is taking a nap during their planning period, but I also don't know their entire life story and maybe they needed it. Maybe they have a newborn at home and they need that time so that way they can be fully present. Um, But I think even growing up, being in multiple sports and taking advanced classes and always being busy being bored is really uncomfortable for me and I don't like it because I'm like, well, who am I? If I'm not a teacher, who am I? Um, so even not touching my work over the summer has been really weird. I, I don't know who I am. I'm going camping. I go and try new things. I go to movies by myself. What am I doing? I don't know who this person is, but it's, I think, figuring out who we are without the identity of our profession or whatever Mm -hmm. is used to measure our success. And I think that's going to add to just overall wellness and overall success aside from our profession and where we get our paycheck. For me, too, there's um, there's this kind of cycle that I can get into sometimes where I feel like if I were working harder at various things, I would be happier, Um, you know, part of why I'm feeling sad right now is because I didn't work hard enough at this relationship or that relationship, or, um, I'm sad cause I, you know, didn't write enough and should be working harder at that. Or, you know, I'd be making more money if I worked harder and then, cause that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, that would mean that I could buy things that would make my life less, less stressful, excuse me. Um, and that kind of loop is also not great. So, um, the POU mission statement, which I'm not going to recite. Y'all don't know that there is be real of me just totally like screwing up the, the POU mission statement. So I'm just going to say that at the end of the mission statement of POU is the word care, um, as is um, it's a value of uh, the diversity center as well. And so care comes up and in both of these spaces. And so if we are communities of care, then how should our organization, so PLU and your the organizations that you all um, are a part of, create actual communities of care? Like, what does that look like? What does spaces, organization, structure look like, look like that support this notion of caring for ourselves and others? When I worked in the Center for Gender Equity for about 11 years, um, we really held self-care up as a very high expectation for our, the staff and the students based on the work that we did. We did a lot of work um, advocating for victims of violence, doing social justice activism, um, pretty heavy stuff. And so we we knew early on um, we needed to create space and time to take care of ourselves and take care of our, ourselves as, as a team. Um, so we would be really intentional about spending quality time together, um, making sure that we had our basic needs met, um, you know, eating, going to the bathroom or taking a little nap if we needed to. And there was never the, the culture there of, 
oh, so you get to eat lunch today. Lucky you, right? It was, of course, you're going to eat lunch. Like, have a snack, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really um, focused on that, and we really supported that with the students that worked with us. Um, If a student came in and was talking about they were stressed because of, of their workload or their coursework, one of the questions is, well, what do you need? Do you need to take some time off and go do something for yourself? We really fostered that. There was never any shame in, oh, you can't get everything done, or um, there was never any one-upping of, oh, you think you have a lot of work to do. You should see mine, or you thought your your case was challenging. You should hear this case. It was the work you do impacts you, and you need to take care of it in the way that works for you, and we're going to support that and really celebrate it. And I think one of the things that we can do as an organization or ideally as a culture is, is celebrate self-care um, and not um, shame it. <laughs> Um, not put expectations around how it should look and create space for people to do it without feeling guilty or having to apologize or, or accommodate for it. One of the things that I always model in the um, in the diversity center is that I n- never schedule meetings over my lunch and I never have lunch at my desk. I always come out and eat and I always take my vacation. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, some people don't need to have lunch, like they want to have lunch at their desk or they want to have meetings over lunch, but don't impose that on other people mm-hmm. um, just because it might not give you energy to sit and, you know, at the black table and have lunch in community doesn't mean that someone else doesn't have that value. And take your vacation like you earn your vacation. Like mm-hmm. I don't understand people who don't take their vacation. You earn it. It is yours and you need it, I'm sure. And I think that students, of course, look to us to mm-hmm. see how to be how to behave in at the university and when they leave. And so I think it's really important for us to model that these small things that have a lot of meaning to them, like your vacation and your lunch, they're yours. They're mm-hmm. like things. They're part of the organization that you actually own mm-hmm. um, and how to take advantage of those things that you you have earned. So. Don't schedule a meeting for me over lunch because I won't come. And <laughs> take your va- take your vacation. If there are any VPs and presidents out there, take your vacation because the rest of us look to you to mm-hmm. see how we're supposed to behave. And if we, not me, because I take my vacation, but if we, big we, don't see you taking care of yourself, you know what is that modeling for other folks? And not just own, but you deserve it too. Yes. You deserve those little things. Yes. Everyone does. Mm-hmm. One thing that you touched on a little bit, Angie, was um, our emotional energy and our emotional capacity um, and being protective of that, too. We often think about our, our time or our, mm. our finances or, you know, our lunch breaks. Um, but sometimes it's um, saying, I can't debrief this situation mm-hmm. with you right now. Um, I'm at a place where that's not going to work for me. How can I help you talk to someone else? Or is there a time that we can talk about it later? Um, you know, I sit with clients all day. I'll see nine clients in a row and then go home and my child will say, I had the worst day ever. And sometimes I have to go and I will talk to you about that in half an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not at a place to do that right now. It's not going to serve either of us any good. Or Angie, like you talked about, you know, you sit and, and kind of shoot the shit with students sometimes Mm -hmm. and you're hearing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there may be times where you're going to say, I need to step out or I can't do that today. I don't have the capacity for it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think having boundaries around our emotional or mental capacity whether it's removing things that just don't serve us or um, removing toxic habits, toxic people, toxic relationships, um, so that we have a better capacity to protect our, our emotional selves. 
Yeah, a huge example of that. Um, and it didn't really go very well for me mm-hmm. at school. Um, we had a staff meeting around a topic that was really personally upsetting. And it was about like boundaries in the workplace and sexual assault. And I had a personal experience. Um, so I told my principal, you know, I really don't feel comfortable um, sitting in a huge staff meeting about it, but I'm happy to sit down with the presenters or, you know, debrief with this person um, and get information that I missed. But to physically be there in a room with that many people that I don't know very well, it doesn't feel comfortable. Um, And I don't know if I didn't do that great of a job communicating that boundary or it just was an expectation um, because I don't think it's very common in professional settings for people to set up that boundary, especially around difficult topics. I was still expected to be there and I sat through it and my face was red the entire time because I felt like it was about me. But I think just speaking up, that gets the ball rolling. And next time, I think that administrator is going to think again about saying, no, you're you're expected to be there like everybody else. Because mm-hmm. uh, that could have just been the first time that he had heard that in his career or um, he just thought I wanted to go home and play with my dog because that's where I would rather be. But I think bringing it up as difficult as it is, and even though the result wasn't exactly what I wanted, um, I think people need to start asking for what they need. Mm-hmm. And I probably should have demanded it instead of suffering through it because that was a huge setback. But um, I think setting up those boundaries is something that we need to start doing more of as proactive self-care. Mm-hmm. This all leads for me, um, and we've said it multiple times, multiple people have said it multiple times, but guilt and feeling guilty. You feel guilty if you're not performing self-care in a way that you think others want to see it. You feel guilty if you're not busy. You feel guilty even saying the word self-care. So how can, how do we deal with that? How do we disengage or take care of ourselves or do what we need to do um, to care for ourselves without this feeling of guilt? I'm learning to be less reactive and defensive if someone has a question um, because I can get sassy at the drop of a hat. So if someone says, (laughs) you know, why are you doing that? Instead of being argumentative, um, I'll practice conversations with myself ahead of time. And that takes the nerves and the anxiety out of it. But saying something like, well, the way that my self-care is set up, I can't do that on Saturdays. On Monday, we can meet at this time and talk about that. Or um, teachers often get those emails from principals that just say, I need to see you. And it's terrifying. And then you usually get one at like 3.30 on a Friday and you have to sweat it out all weekend. Um, But saying, I need you to tell me the context of the situation so I can prepare, um, so we can have a productive conversation. Um, That's been more helpful because I just get obsessive and I fixate on any little clue or sign so I can interpret because I'm so high context and I get anxious and the unknown really freaks me out. Like to a lot of people, I'm not that adventurous. So you need to tell me what to expect. And if you're not going to, I'm going to ask for it. Um, So that way I don't have to sit there and think to myself all weekend, you know, I wish I would have said something or I should have phrased it a different way because when people know what to expect from me, they're not disappointed. And I think that's the best thing I can do for myself. A lot of it is really internal for me, a lot of the pressure I feel in regard to self-care. So I kind of brought this up earlier, but really just 
sort of divesting from self-care as some kind of transaction where I put in one thing and I get another Mm. out. And sure, I put in time and effort and all of that stuff, and I do get stuff out of it, but it's not really a one-to-one and just kind of trying to continually like free myself of that and uh, sort of just let myself be and I do what I do and and that's okay. For me, it's practicing what I preach. Um, I talk to clients all day long, day in and day out about taking care of themselves. I talk to my children about it. I talk to my partner about it. I've done webinars and taught classes on self-care. And so I, you know, we, we are okay with other people doing self-care. Um, but when it's for ourselves, sometimes we feel kind of guilty. Um, and so I say, you know, if, if my loved one was feeling really burnt out or tired after a long day, would I totally support them in whatever they needed, um, to, to relax, to decompress, to take care of themselves? Of course. Right. So why is that not true for me? Um, and if anybody, you know, and then I kind of think if anybody is judging me for doing that, they're probably not the right people to be in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's sort of flipping that script and going, I'm going to support self-care for myself like I would in anybody else. And I have that expectation that others are going to support it in me like they would in anybody else as well. And if you don't like it, get out. Right. <laughs> Kick rocks. <laughs> <laughs> so this is so funny because it I don't want us to feel like we need to post pictures on social media to make sure that we hold each other accountable. But what one act, radical act of self-care are you all going to do this week? I'm going to the dentist, which I hate, but it's something that I need. And it's also forcing me to take time out to address a need instead of putting it off and putting it off and getting in my own head and just saying I'll deal with it next time, actually facing it and then feeling proud of myself afterwards. Um, That self-care is a huge thing. And I joined a gym this week. I don't know who I am. <laughs> I went to like a Tai Chi yoga class yesterday, yeah. which is not me, but it was interesting. And I learned a lot and I actually enjoyed it aside from the summer camp that also attended. Um, it was not as quiet and peaceful as I thought it would be, but it was something new. Um, and after we're done recording this, I'm going to go back to the gym and do like 30 minutes on the elliptical to decompress after this. That's dope. Yeah. I think I'm going to try and spend a day writing. Yes. That's always nice. Even when it's rough, it's still at the end. You're like, I'm so glad I invested in that. Mm-hmm. Spent time on that. Oh, see, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Divest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the process of moving, which is a very daunting, overwhelming process for me. So I made the commitment to end work early this week and next week, not work late into the evening so that I have some time to kind of slowly get things together to move instead of feeling rushed in the future. So sort of an investment, if you will, in my future self um, by creating some time and space for me to get organized. Well, that brings us to an end to our time together. I want to thank you all so, so much for being here. The last thing that we always do on a Decenter podcast is give shout outs. So think about who you want to give a shout out to. It, it can relate to the topic. It doesn't have to relate to the topic. You can shout, shout out your barista because your coffee is on point. <laughs> um, I'm going to shout out um, one of the things um, I think 
Malia kind of mentioned was around work and self-care and how you need to kind of, we keep saying divest, but divest sometimes from your work. Um, but I think for me, because I spend so many hours here that I also have to find how to care for myself in this space with the people that I work with. And I'm able to do that because I have some some people, some co-conspirators who have my back. So I want to shout out Lace Smith, Jennifer Smith, and Luke Ruiz, who hold me accountable, who listen to me talk shit, um, and who um, make this place um, a lot better to be, to be myself. So shout out to those three folks. Who's got a shout out? You stole my shout out. Did I really? I, did. I guess we can double shout out. We can double. Oh, oh, our head is going to get so big. It is. <laughs> so I want to <laughs> shout out to Bobby Hughes and, <laughs> and Jennifer Smith, who were um, my directors at the Center for Gender Equity um, when I was doing advocacy work, because they really role modeled self-care and really made sure that... Um, me being the person on campus who did the advocacy work was also taken care of, um, which was very easy to forget sometimes. Um, and they really supported me um, in feeling worthy of taking time for myself and helped create kind of policies and structures for that role to continue to be supported in that way. Um, so they are badass self-care advocates. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to my partner, Jason Saunders. He is the choir director at Graham Kapowson High School. Um, I went to his end of the year concert recently and then also like an alumni barbecue. And I just was really moved by the kind of community that he and the students had made together. Um, one where they were all really supportive of each other and, you know, crying on stage together and helping each other through hardships. And, um, I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier about, having that kind of space in our communities to get what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't want it to sound like I'm kissing your ass, Angie, but <laughs> girl, I know you'll appreciate it. Um, <laughs> a lot of the foundational work that you set up for me during my time in the D center, when I was a student at PLU has set me up for the happy life that I have now. Um, in my freshman year, my religion professor, Dr. Catherine Brazil, um, who passed away, but she took the time to get to know all of us. And she set such a great example for what a caring, effective educator does. She actually looked up my phone number um, after class one day because I was really upset about something. I was really quiet, which to her was a red flag that I wasn't talking. Um, and she called me and asked me if I was okay and asked me if I wanted to come over for tea and cookies. And she just talked to me for hours and to have that kind of relationship with a professor who I thought I was invisible to, um, that set me up for, I need to start taking more time for myself, even though that message didn't sink in until years later. Um, but I'm forever grateful for that from her. Yes. The importance of seeing and being seen. Thank you so much. So also shout out to our producer, Thomas, our engineer, Doug, and the Department of Marketing Communication, who continues to allow us to center our voices in these types of conversations. So again, thank you so much, Malia, Jennifer, and Kobe for being here with me. This was so much fun. Um, And until next time, see y'all later.